On a hill too far away, 15 Protestant truths about the death of God the Son. This is part 9. And there are parts of your notes that I'm going to leave out. And there's some things that I just, last minute, want to add that aren't in your notes. So just, just so you'll know that I have at least a vague idea where we're going, even if it doesn't look like it. All right? Two thoughts as we continue with part 9 in this series. Jesus Christ died on the cross to free us from both slavery to sin and the fear of death. And it's on the slavery to sin part that I'm going to make some modifications. You'll see as we, as we uh, go along. So, not just the forgiveness of sin, the bondage of sin, the, the habit forming capacity of sin in our lives and then the fear of death and I have two texts that I want to work through a little bit they're not long Revelation 1 5 to 6 I think that's in your notes and Hebrews 2 14 and 15 Revelation 1 5 6 says this and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who Loves us, this by the way, if you go out to that plaque that churches stick up when they dedicate their new buildings, and most of them just say to the glory of God or whatever, and I was uh, so emphatic that these words are on the, what used to be called kind of the cornerstone of our church. It says this, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's what it says when you go out the door. Who loves us and has freed us from our... Not just cleansed us. Freed us from our sins by his blood. And made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. That's us. Flesh and blood. He, Jesus, likewise partook in the incarnation, partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that the Bible would ascribe the power of death to the devil. And I want to explain that phrase when we get to that second part of the message. And deliver, so here's... Through death, Jesus, through death, the last part, the middle part of verse 14. Jesus died on the cross, so he took on flesh and blood, that through death, that's the crucifixion, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and the thought continues, through his death on the cross, deliver all those who through fear of death we're subject to lifelong slavery. So that's interesting. Fear of death making us subject to lifelong while we're alive. Fear of death that brings lifelong slavery. That's the second part we'll look at. Point number one. Jesus died on the cross to free us from the dominion of sin in our thoughts and actions. I mentioned in Revelation 1.5 where it says from Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has, has freed us 
from our sins by his blood. So by his blood, obviously, that's his death on the cross, the crucifixion. That's where uh, he gave his life for us. Freed us from our sins. John, in his apocalypse, he says that that's, that's one of the results of the cross. So it's more than just erasing the guilt of our sins from the books of God. That's priceless beyond telling. Amen? That, that the guilt is gone. That God pardons guilty people. That we, don't, that we don't work our way to a state of righteousness and then God loves us. That before we do anything good at all, think about that for a minute. Before we do anything good at all, we are pardoned. Like that's striking. And it's hope giving. So our guilt is erased. And then he says, more than that, our lives are freed, freed from sin. It's the same thing Paul talks about in, in Romans 6.14, where he says, for, for sin will have, will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. There's something about the coming of grace, not just knowing what it is, and not just saying certain words, but there's something in the embracing of grace, in feeling the marvel of grace, in Tasting the sweetness of grace. There's something in that experience that destroys the dominion of sin. Sin won't have dominion over you. Why? You're not under the law, but under grace. So it's not, it's not a matter of just being freed from our sins by willpower because we're incredibly disciplined people or incredibly righteous people. But there's something about once we are justified, once the guilt of sin has been erased before we did anything good, there is something in the appreciating of that fact that sets our lives on a course of ongoing sanctification. Paul says sin, sin won't be your master anymore because you're under grace. John says the same thing in the apocalypse in our opening text. He says through Christ's blood we experience release, freed from our sins. Now, how how does that happen? How does that happen? Do we experience freedom from the power of sin... In exactly the same way as we experience freedom from the guilt of sin. Do you understand the question? Do we experience freedom from the power of sin in exactly the same way we experience freedom from the guilt of sin? I think the answer to that question is no. Not in exactly the same way. But they are they are related. They are related. And they're related like this. As Christians think through and marvel, this is the reason for this series. As Christians think through, don't just assume, don't just take for granted, but really ponder the marvel of grace 
that before we do one good thing, we are pardoned. Okay? Now, when the weight of that starts to warm your heart from the inside, it can't just be a casual glance. When I survey the wondrous cross, then the Holy Spirit... It's not just my will. My will's involved, but it's not just my will. The Holy Spirit starts to motivate me against my own unrighteousness. All right? It's pardoned. It's forgiven. Before I did anything good, I'm pardoned. But freedom from those sins comes from marveling and becoming increasingly thankful and increasingly filled with love for the freedom of that pardon that starts to make me hate my own sinfulness. The Holy Spirit begins as I'm pardoned freely by grace. He begins to turn me against my former self. Now, my own will embraces this process but far more than just my own will is involved the Holy Spirit starts to fuel a different set of intentions in my heart the Holy Spirit begins to shape my best intentions to to grow out of gratitude and love for a pardon that I never deserved and I got before I did anything good that's why by the way when Paul in Galatians 5 starts to talk about the righteous life, he starts to describe it as like the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And things like love and joy and kindness and patience and goodness and surprisingly even self-control, he says, are the fruit of, of the Spirit. And he calls them that not because my will is uninvolved in their forming, but because my own will is beginning to be shaped by the power of the Holy Spirit through the beauty and grace of received, treasured, marveled at, pardoned before I did one good thing. Now this isn't in your notes. Let me just, I want to try and help. Here I am, Pastor Don, and I have this area of my life and I, and I sin again and again and again. And there's the power of a habit there. Um, I do love Jesus. And I do believe he died for my sin. I want to just give you four um, steps to killing, nagging sin. And I'm going to try and make it in brief, brief words and as simple as I can make it. I don't think the church talks about this enough. Four steps to killing, nagging sin. One, hate it. We are so accustomed to using the gospel to just relieve the guilt of sin. The preciousness of the gospel, before you receive any forgiveness, the preciousness of the gospel is in its ability to make you hate sin. Pray much that the Lord will help you hate sin in your life. I said, I might have been in my Christian ed class, or it might have been in here, I forget which. But it was this morning. 
Not at 3.26 in the morning, but it was, that was a different insight entirely. I said in one of those settings that <clears throat> the worst feature of our culture, and this, this works predominantly through the media, but also through, uh, sometimes through education, sometimes through politics, uh, sometimes just through the friendships, the social networks that we make. But, but at ground zero, the worst feature of our culture is that before it makes us all sinners, it makes us all think lightly of sin. Everything in this world is geared to make you think lightly of sin. Everything in this world is geared to make us, to make us laugh at things. that make Jesus weak. You just, just stop, and I'm not doing this to condemn you. We're all in this boat together, okay? So please, this isn't me pointing my finger at you. I'm just talking about all of us and, and the need to think this through. Think of the things that we've watched just casually, sitting in your family room with sitcoms, or, or, and, and just think of how many times you have seen people uh, involved in sexual activity outside of marriage, if not explicitly hinted at, and nothing was thought of it at all. And if you don't think there's a generation of young adults growing up in the church and youth who don't think very seriously about it, then wake up and smell the coffee because that's exactly the way they're starting to think in the church. We are trained. We are trained to not hate sin anymore. The first thing and the most precious thing about the gospel is it should make us hate our sin. If we do not feel the magnitude of our sin, if we aren't gripped by its stench and by its grossness, if we just mumble some glib sayings about grace, we will probably never get around to the serious vigilance required for killing sin in our lives. Killing sin requires First of all, grieving over it. This is particularly true with nagging sins, repeated sins. Repeated sins are the sins we are most likely to become numb to and therefore won't put in the extra effort to resensitize our conscience against them. All right, hate it. Secondly, Starve it. Here's a principle at work in any struggle against nagging sin. The more you indulge it, the more tight its grip over you. And we will understand its grip over our hearts less and less the tighter the bondage becomes. The less you feed it, the weaker it will become. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. One of the most important principles here in starving sin is to act immediately at the first impulses where the Holy Spirit is faithful to say, don't, don't go there. Act quickly. So, hate it. Starve it. 
wasn't getting the word maybe right on this one, but corner it or separate it. Sin, like any other enemy, it thrives among allies. Things like unhappiness, frustration, exhaustion, discouragement. These are the things that come to mind. To to wage effective war against sin, deprive it of the opportunities and the occasions it will make use of. Look for the particular triggers to sin in your life. It might be a geographical location, like a bar if you're struggling with alcohol. Christians shouldn't be in bars. I'm sorry. You just shouldn't be. Sometimes it isn't a place. Sometimes it's an emotion or an unhealthy habit that we need to avoid. It's, it's more easy to succumb to envy. Sorry, it's more difficult to succumb to envy when you are soaking your heart in, in your heavenly inheritance and the fact that Jesus is coming soon. You're less likely to to be tripped up with temper and anger if you start hanging around with people who are exceptionally kind and patient and loving. Isolate your sin from other influences that make that sin more easy. Four, overwhelm it. By that I mean, and it's what I was talking about in that first point in, in the study, by that I mean you will greatly loosen the attractiveness of sin, repeated sin in your life if you focus your attention on the incredible patience and love of God that he still hasn't given up on you. That he still has a heart of kindness and patience toward you. Even when you've lost patience with yourself, he is still there like that prodigal father with his nose pressed against the glass. No good reason in the world why he should be waiting for that son to come home. But there he is, and the son comes. Have you noticed in that story, the son comes home, and there's not one single word about everything that the son did wrong. Have you noticed it? Not a word of correction. Not a word of rebuke. Not an I told you so. There's this son who has done everything wrong that he could possibly do. And he comes home and all he gets is this. That's all he gets. And I think that sin will lose its power over your life more rapidly and more effectively when we think about the overwhelming goodness and grace and pardon of our loving Heavenly Father. Those are the four things I'm thinking of. All right. Point number two. So that's Jesus died on the cross to free us from the bondages of our sin. Point number two. Ron said I wasn't allowed to take his interview time tonight. He was going to fire me. Jesus died on the cross to deliver us from the bondage of the fear of death. I want to take just a minute talking about this. 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself, likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I see three um, destiny-shaping truths in this text, and they revolve around sort of three questions. A, 
Satan is described as having the power of death. I want to know, how does he have this power, and what does it mean? Secondly, Jesus destroys Satan's power through his own death, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. I want to know, how does Jesus' death do this? Third, C, Christ's death frees us from the bondage of the fear of death and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I want to look at each of those. Satan is described as having the power of death. We need to be careful about what that does mean and what it doesn't mean. We know Satan doesn't have the power over who lives and who dies and when we leave this world. He doesn't choose our departure time. Job says the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. The psalmist says, 93, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. So he doesn't have the power of death in terms of taking this person, this person, this person, leaving that person, that person. That's not his power. There is, however, a power of death that Satan does hold in his hand. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Okay, this is the power of death that Satan carries everywhere he goes. He tempts, he entices us to sin, and his key tool, if no one's told you this, his key tool isn't voodoo, witchcraft, seances, curses, generational curses, or demons. His chief tool for leading people into sin is deception. His chief tool is his ability to cause us to think things are true that are lies and his ability to deny things or belittle things or overlook things that are eternally true and important and precious. But he does lead people into sin and that puts a sting into death because sin brings eternal judgment, it brings accountability, it brings damnation and that's where sin, Satan gets his power in death. Through sin, death brings eternal condemnation and judgment, separation from Father God. And by the way, if you want to hate sin... You need to think through the consequences of sin. It's because the church never talks about eternal judgment anymore that the whole evangelical church is starting to think very lightly about sin. I mean, how, how bad can it be? That kind of thing. And the thing about it is, as the temperature lowers, as the moral practice of the church lowers, commonly, then what happens is we look around at everybody else and they're all at the same level, you see. And so if you're grading on a curve, we're all doing pretty well. So Satan has this power of death, condemnation, sin, a broken law, judgment. That's the power that he has. Now, Jesus destroys Satan through his own death on the cross. The verse is very emphatic. It doesn't, it doesn't just say he, he has a slight effect on Satan. It says... Hebrews 2.14, that through death he, Jesus, might, look at the words, destroy him who had the power of death. Who's the one that had the power of death? Yes! Thank you so much. Who's the one Jesus, it says he destroys? Who's that? 
Satan. So I think we are all agreed that prior to the cross, in fact, prior to the incarnation, Jesus, God the Son, before he ever took on human flesh, had the sheer power, the sheer might and omnipotence to destroy Satan a thousand times over. Agreed? He could have done that easily. Here's the thing. It wouldn't have done us any good. It wouldn't have done us any good because he wouldn't have destroyed Satan through death. That through death he might destroy him. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells us in verse 10 of the same chapter that, that the incarnation of Jesus was, was how he was, this strange phrase, he was made perfect as the author of salvation. Wasn't he perfect before? Made perfect as the author of salvation. The pre-incarnate Christ. Before he took on human flesh, there's one thing he couldn't do. He could never experience death. And only through his death Could Jesus remove the sting of death? My sin, my guilt, the broken law that brings condemnation and judgment. Only through death did Jesus bear the wrath of God and the curse of sin for us. So, this is how Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Now we get to the last point. Christ's death frees us now from the bondage of the fear of death. Remember, I said the strange thing in that phrase, this bondage of the fear of death is something that is held lifelong by all of us. While we're living, we experience this bondage of the fear of death. Now, we're not freed from the experience of death, not yet. We will be, but not yet. The Bible says there's still this last enemy. Isn't that a beautiful description? The last enemy, and it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed. But it hasn't happened yet. Death rate in this room is exactly the same as everywhere else in the world. One per person. We die. But the bondage of the fear of death. The text says that Jesus, through his death on the cross, he destroyed the one who was able to keep us in this bondage of the fear of death all our lives long. The bondage of the fear of death. What does that mean? It's not just, well, nobody likes the idea of dying. I think that's true. But that's not what it's talking about. The bondage of the fear of death. It's not a simple question. What does that mean? It can't mean that Christians no longer think about death. Can't mean that because this Bible is the one that says we're to number our days, we're to redeem the time. So we all know, non-Christians, Christians alike, that we're going to die and we can't deny that experience. So that's not what the bondage of the fear of death is that we've been delivered from. I think the bondage of the fear of death comes from two things. It comes from the fear that ultimately we're not ready for death. We don't have peace with God. Even if we aren't sure, I'm thinking of people outside the church, even if we're not sure, it's a big risk. We fear judgment. 
We fear that everything is going to come crashing down in that final awful moment of possible eternal accountability. We're not ready. And secondly, bondage of the fear of death, it comes from this gnawing awareness that everything ends at death. We fear that we can do nothing in this life that will outlast our three score and ten or maybe four score years. And the reason that fear is called bondage is because it drives us so relentlessly to secure ourselves against the inevitable. Insurance. Life insurance. Investment. Something. We're driven to secure ourselves against an enemy we know we can't beat. Because Christ has removed the condemnation we all faced before God's broken law and we've been pardoned, because he has destroyed the one who had the power of death, we know two things for sure, and I'm done. Here's what we know. We know that nothing, including death itself, can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's precious. Secondly, we know that our labor is never in vain in the Lord. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, for their works do follow them. And so, Christians are the freest people in the world... In this sense, Christ's death on the cross has done two things. Remember where we've been tonight. We have been freed from our sins, not just the guilt, the bondage. Not perfectly, not perfectly, but increasingly. And I gave you those four steps that I think are so important. Freed from our sins. Freed from the bondage of the fear of death. Both those things are different from forgiveness. Both are incredibly precious, and both should fill our hearts with, with joy.